This is Gary Wolf talking with Lavi Tidar. How are you doing, Lavi? Fine, fine. Uh, I'm surviving the apocalypse so far. That's good um, to know. T- turns out the apocalypse is a lot less fun when you're uh, when you're in it. Uh, that's true. I mean, we we always had this sense of it might be kind of fun to live through a new frontier environment. And you know, zombie apocalypses, you can at least kill lots and lots of people. And now you can't do anything. You can't have any of the fun of an apocalypse. Well, I have to, I have to admit, you know, because I have lived on a desert island, I, I do keep bang on, banging on about it. But having lived on a desert island, what people don't understand is that it's mostly just waiting. Well, let's start with our questions we're asking everybody. The first question here is, uh, are, what are you reading these days and is it any good? I was hoping um, to do a lot more reading during self-isolation <laughs> than, than I actually am doing. Um, the, 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 current, the, book, the book I'm trying to finish at the moment, or trying to read at the moment in my, my downtime, is actually the last Philip Kerr novel, um, Metropolis, which is not a science fiction novel. It's a murder mystery set in, in 1928 Berlin. Mm-hmm. And, How um, you know, I knew, That's not yeah. a recent novel, is it? No, it's it, it's his last novel before he died. So oh, I think okay. it's probably a couple of years now, and it's the last Bernie Gunther um, detective novel, which was a big inspiration for a man like Dreaming. Ah, okay. Um, and I knew Philip Kerr very slightly, so I've been saving it um, for a while. And, yeah, it's it's very very good, you know. Um, just kind of sad to be reading the last one and know there's not going to be any more after that. I know. I, as a matter of fact, at the moment I've just finished reading the last Gene Wolfe novel, uh, which is a sad feeling. Um, yeah. Next question. I'm sorry. Is there anything yeah. else? No, I think um, I think with writers who have died, you always have to keep a couple of books, you know, for emergencies. Uh huh. So I have a couple of Ian Banks I've never read. <laughs> yeah. Good. I was saving all of these for the apocalypse, and now we're kind of in the apocalypse. So I might are the, actually. Are the, are the ones you're saving Ian Banks or Ian M Banks? Ian M Banks. Oh, okay. Yeah. What would you um, What would you recommend people read in a time like this? Well, I mean. I'll tell you what's on my on my reading my to read list. Obviously, I now get a certain number of books to read um, for my my reviewing gig, right? Where, uh, which is quite nice. But I mean, one book that's on my desk that I'm dying to get to is I think you guys mentioned it in your last podcast is uh, Zen shows the order of the pure moon reflected in water. Oh yes, that's wonderful. Which is one of those, it's like a Samuel Delaney title, which doesn't fit mm-hmm. on the cover. <laughs> um, but that looks like, it just looks great fun. I mean, have you read it already? I have read it, and it's, uh, it, it's, not, it's not nearly as delicate as the title might make you expect. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's what interests me, is that it is, it is doing that sort of, it works in a specific genre, which is the, the, the martial arts genre. Yes. Um, and I was obviously I was doing the same thing or a parody of it in uh, by force alone. I was doing Lancelot as a as a Jewish kung fu. <laughs> right, exactly. That was master. Um, but that was very much you know I, I had to research the genre and 
the conventions of the genre and so on. So I'm really interested to see what Zen Cho did with it. Well, that's uh, that's an interesting point, and it brings us to the third uh, and most interesting thing I want to talk to you about, uh, which is what you have coming up uh, in June, I think. Is that correct? Is it the same publication date here and in the UK? Um, I think it's been pushed to August now. Okay. Well. And um, I'm... You know, realistically speaking, it's probably being pushed to the um, to the end of the world at this point. Um, but hopefully in August, yeah. Well, uh, tell tell us a little bit about. I, I I I read it. I had a great deal of fun with it, and I I maybe after we stop recording, there's some things I want to ask you about. <laughs> but I was I thought we were going to recommend that we all go out and read Chrétien de Troyes and Jeffrey of Monmouth <laughs> and that sort of thing, um, and. Thank you for saving us from that fate. I, yeah, I mean, I absolutely loathe Arthurian fiction. <laughs> um, it's, um, it's also interesting that just about everyone who wrote Arthurian fiction in the past were, were horrible people. If you look at the... Yeah. You, look, you know, starting with Thomas Mallory, who was, was an absolute... You know, what was he? he was a murderer and a rapist and uh, absolutely horrible person. Um so, you know, I have no affection for that field at all. Well, that, that, that's what struck me as being such an odd thing for you to write, because I had the same feeling that when I, when I saw what this was, I thought, the last thing I want to read is another take on Arthurian legend. Um, and you surprised me. I, I had a lot of fun with it. But but one of the reasons I had fun with it was, uh, as you point out uh, in a very well-researched afterward, you can't be wrong about Arthurian legends because everybody who wrote anything about them just made up whatever they wanted. Right. It's I, I kind of think of it as the first, you know, shared world fan fiction project that mm-hmm. these guys were just adding, making stuff up, you know. And and, and the thing is, people kind of like to go to uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth, you know, the, the history of the kings of Britain. Uh-huh. And say, oh, you know, it's based, it's clearly based on, on true bits of history. And and people forget, because they've never read it, is that the whole thing starts with Brutus of Troy conquering the Isle of Britain and slaying all the giants who are the only people living on the island. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing historical. There's no history in any of this nonsense. Um, you know, it's a really good story. I mean, it was, you know, it was borrowing. I think Merlin is borrowed from some Welsh stories and so on. But... Um, yeah, it's completely made up, but it's fantastic. It's a it's a fantastic sort of formula, you know. And and really, Arthurian fiction is sort of formula fiction, which is partly why it's interesting. Well, I remember in graduate school being assigned. I took a class on Arthurian romance and was reading the Everyman's Library translations of Chrétien de Troyes, and I thought those are those are basically westerns. I mean, those are spaghetti westerns uh, done with 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 knights instead of uh, six guns. But actually, I thought they were a lot of fun to read, but I barely recognized anything in them that I would have thought of as British history. No, absolutely. And also, they are kind of horrifyingly wrong. Um, I was mostly working off a Victorian children's version. Uh (laughs) Before you ascribe any, um, you know, academic aspirations of uh, uh, reading, uh, reading in the original Norman, Norman English or whatever it was. Well, no, I in the Latin. Um, yeah, and, and you think this is for children? I mean, all, all you know, all Arthur does is he goes around slaying people because he <laughs> wants to be king. It's, um, 
Yeah, and I, and I was shocked at the stories. It's it's quite a horrible story that is presented as as being a story about honor and chivalry, and and I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it. I had one publisher actually reject the book early on because they said people don't want this version of Arthur. They want the warmth, and I'm quoting, they want the warmth and nostalgia mm. of the original tales. And I thought that was funny enough that I put it into the book, actually. I, no, I think that... Um, well, that, it's, not, it's not really a spoiler to tell people that we, we first meet Arthur as a teenage drug dealer in London. Um, but the thing that impressed me about a lot of those details is as, as outrageous as uh, your violence is to the Arthurian legend. There's a lot of historical research because I looked it up and that drug he's smuggling was a real drug. Uh, what's it called? <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um, yeah, it's the the fungus that grows on rye. Barley, I think. Or, on uh, barley, yeah. Um, and also people don't actually read the original stories either because Merlin is not an old guy with a... Firstly, Arthur is a teenager when he right. starts off. Secondly, Merlin isn't an old fat man with a beard. He's a kid. And yeah. the reason he looks like an old fat man with a beard, the, the reason he becomes, you know, Gandalf and uh, what's, what's his name from Harry Potter? Um, oh, Dumbledore. Dumbledore. Yeah. Um, is because Arthur doesn't believe him. Arthur <laughs> goes, who, who is this, you know, smooth-cheeked youth telling me that he's a great wizard? So he goes off and he comes back looking like a proper wizard. Because he can change into any form he wants. And, right. You know, uh, but um, the other thing, the, the other thing, which is something, I think this is something we need to let people know. Because I, I, I think you're chronically a science fiction writer. And no matter what you start writing, science fiction works its way into this increasingly as we go through it. Um, yeah. Is that fair enough to say? I mean, not only that you have lines of dialogue like keep watching the skies or attack ships on fire. <laughs> I mean, come on. But the grail itself, I don't want to give too much away, except would it be fair to say that I was strongly reminded of Roadside Picnic by the time I was done? It's, it's hardly, it's hardly <laughs> like a, a difficult to make out if you if you've read Roadside Picnic. It's absolutely homage to Roadside Picnic. But again, this comes from researching the original versions, and and oh, really? in fact, the the first three, the, the all three versions of the Grail are in this book because I couldn't resist. Um, so the original Grail starts off as a saucer of blood. And uh -huh. the keeper of the grail is sort of a vampire who keeps drinking from it and has eternal life. Um, so I couldn't resist having some Nazi vampires in there. <laughs> of course. At point. Just a little bit of Nazi vampires. Um, and then the, the second version of the grail, it's a star stone. It's a lapis exilis. Uh -huh. It's not a grail at all. It's a, it's a fallen star stone. So that's where the whole thing came from, you know, with a bit of maybe Monty Pythons thrown yeah. in. Um, and the grail only becomes the cup that holds um, the blood of Christ uh, later on in like the third iteration they, of the, the story. So it's it, it, no, it's very cleverly worked out. And I believe there was a comet in a, in a year without summer in the sixth century sometime, wasn't there? There was. Yeah. Which, again, I kind of used, I, you know, I found out about this extreme weather event. Uh -huh. um, and, and I was fascinated enough to work that in as a as a connection but yeah the whole thing 
he's hanging by a thread. It's great. It's 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 a huge amount of fun. I encourage everybody to look at it and and we're out of time for our recording here. So once again, this has been ten minutes with a lobby titter. This is Gary Wolf, and join us for the next one of these episodes with either that's my timer going off telling us that in <laughs> fact we're done with our ten minutes. Um either Jonathan or I or both of us. But again, thank you, Lavi. Thank you. Okay. And